first, a couple of um, housekeeping issues. Um, first, I know that in the program it says I'm actually going to be talking about Congo, but I'm actually going to just present um, my broad research, and then if we want to get into the case study during the Q&A, we can go ahead and do that. Um, and also, I'm going to preempt a question that you were told to ask this morning by our plenary speaker, which is which UN, uh, because I almost always get this question when I present on this topic. Um, I'm looking specifically at DPKO, uh, the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, and so the, the secretariat staff as well as the field staff. Um, but in my research, I did look at other parts of the UN, and again, that's something we can discuss in the Q&A um, if, if you guys are interested in that. Um, so. Uh, my presentation, as John said, explores local ownership and UN peacebuilding operations. Um, as you probably know, the discourse of local ownership um, has become ubiquitous in the UN. Um, advocates maintain that it renders peacebuilding more legitimate and more sustainable, and any number of policy documents, best practices guidelines, even sometimes the mandates of missions stress how important it is to the practice of peacebuilding. I compare and contrast that discourse with the practice of ownership. How is ownership actually operationalized? How is it done in the field by the United Nations? Um, and I outline a major discrepancy between these two. While the discourse of local ownership um, is very broad and inclusive, um, its operationalization is restricted both in terms of who can, who can be involved and what they can do. Uh, and I set up a typology of how local actors are included or not included, as the case may be, in UN peace operations. Um, my overall argument is that local ownership is conceived of by the UN as a fix to the contradiction inherent in peacebuilding between effective international intervention and after civil war and self-determination. Uh, and it represents an attempt by the UN to balance between operational and normative objectives. Um, these are, on the operational side, to liberalize the post-conflict state in order to achieve peace and stability and to deliver concrete results in the short term, such as disarmament, the holding of elections, and so on. Um, and on the normative side, to behave in line with self-determination and non-imposition. Uh, more specifically, the UN's discursive emphasis on local ownership is an attempt to generate or maintain legitimacy based on behaving or appearing to behave in line with institutional principles, self-determination and non-imposition, um, which are often violated in the context of UN interventions. But its operationalization of ownership shows a tendency to limit local agency in order to prioritize the achievement of those more operational objectives which in turn limit the benefits of, self, of legitimacy and, and sustainability that are thought to come from local ownership. Um, moreover, ironically, the restricted operationalization of local ownership actually has negative implications for achieving the very operational goals um, that it's sort of designed to protect. Um, so in the end, I argue that this is why local ownership sort of doesn't work as expected. It doesn't generate the type of legitimacy that, that one would expect it to. Um, I'll now look at um, the discourse and operationalization of local ownership in a bit more detail. Um, the, oh, my formatting is a little weird. Anyway, <laughs> you get the gist of it. Um, so first, the discourse of local ownership emphasizes the broad inclusion of local actors um, in, an, in a very wide array of peacebuilding tasks in order to build legitimacy and sustainability um, by preserving self-determination and minimizing the degree of external imposition. And the logic is it's fairly commonsensical. If external actors do everything for local actors, um, first the process is, going, is not going to be viewed as legitimate because it will have been designed and led by outsiders, and second, local actors are going to become dependent on international ones um, to, to, to maintain peace and therefore unable to sustain these processes once the UN has withdrawn. 
Um, I should stress that breadth and scope are both considered key to these benefits. The more local actors are involved and the wider array of activities they're involved in, the more sort of self-determined the peacebuilding process is going to be and the lesser the degree of imposition by the UN. So therefore, the greater the benefits in terms of legitimacy and sustainability. Um, operationalization. Despite this inclusive rhetoric, um, the UN actually implements local ownership in a much more restricted um, and ad hoc and selective manner. Um, this reluctance on the part of the UN to grant ownership to local actors um, derives, I think, from a fear that the excessive involvement of local actors is going to undercut its ability to achieve its operational goals of liberalizing the state and delivering tangible, sort of quantifiable results. And again, the logic here is that local actors, particularly after conflict, are likely to have very weak capacities and very often will have divisive tendencies after emerging from a civil war situation. Um, and therefore, this could hinder the UN's achievement of its goals. Um, I'm going to divide my analysis of the UN's operationalization into two sections, one on practices and one on actors. Um, first, the UN limits the role of local actors in the planning, design, and implementation of peace operations, and it usually relegates them to a secondary role and allows them only to participate on an irregular basis in a very sort of ad hoc medley of activities such as sensitizations and trainings, meetings, and consultations. Um, within this assortment of practices, there's not really a cohesive strategy, um, and there's very little coordination within the UN. Um, and most importantly, I would say, none are really undertaken with a view specifically to building ownership. Um, they're often undertaken in order to get information or to do other things, and if ownership is, a, is part of that, great, but that's not really the ultimate goal. Um, in addition, these practices all tend to be restricted, um, with the UN enabling the symbolic participation of local actors, but rarely actually giving them any substantive decision-making power or the ability to review decisions that have already been taken by the UN. Um, so this leaves them with what you might call just sort of token ownership. Um, the UN also restricts which local actors can participate. Um, and it argue, I argue that it selects local actors based on two different criteria. One is values and one is capacities. Um, and this, in turn, gives rise to two types of ownership. Um, the first is what I call liberal ownership, in which we see the inclusion of a broad array of actors as long as they are aligned with the UN's normative post-conflict priorities, which include things like democracy and market liberalization um, and a respect for human rights and so on, um, but without regard for their capacity levels. And this comes about in response to the fear that including illiberal actors in peace building will imperil the liberalization of the state, which, as I said before, is a key operational goal for the UN. Um, in this version of ownership, there's a particular emphasis on subnational political and military actors and non-state actors like civil society, women's groups, youth groups. Um, and that's because these groups are thought to be more liberal and more moderate. Um, and under this version of ownership, we're also avoiding as much as possible po actors who are possibly associated with repression, violence, and corruption, and so on. Um, however, while this may seem like the broad inclusion that we hear in discourse of local ownership, it's actually quite a selective version of ownership in that actors that don't fit the UN's sort of normative mold are excluded. The second type of ownership is what I call elite ownership, and it emphasizes the inclusion of existing state military and state political and military elites um, due to their perceived capacities for delivering quantifiable results, um, but without regard for their normative orientation. And it's thought that first, it's most likely going to be these elites who are going to take over the reins of governance after the UN has left. Um, and second, that they have greater existing capacities for peace building. Um, many post-war elites 
um, as much as we may not want that to be the situation, are often the same elites that existed before the war and during the war. Um, so many of them are perceived to have um, experience, and many of them do actually have experience with political mobilization, military command, some of them have received extensive training. Um, so they're often given, um, in this version of ownership, they're, they're the ones that are emphasized. And importantly, they're often given a more substantive degree of ownership than the sort of token ownership I talked about before, um, exactly due to this perception that they have technical capacity. Um, however, this still represents a very selective group for, national, for local ownership. Um, and so again, it, it shows that the, the ownership in, in practice is a very selective and restricted thing. So this very restrictive approach to local ownership that I've just described clearly stands in contrast to a lot of the discourse that we hear of ownership. Um, and it throws into doubt the ability of local ownership to actually enhance legitimacy and sustainability, which is what the discourse seems to imply. Um, because it, it doesn't do much to actually preserve self-determination or minimize the degree of, of imposition by the UN. Um, however, despite these hesitations related to granting ownership to national actors, the UN continues to invoke the discourse sort of always and everywhere. Um, and this seems to suggest that local ownership for the UN may be primarily a discursive tool. Um, this gets to what Cyril said this morning. Um, that is, though it hesitates to actually involve local actors, the UN continues to invoke the discourse in an attempt to generate legitimacy by appearing to be compliant with institutional principles. Um, in, in other words, if the UN emphasizes, even if only rhetorically, the importance of local involvement in peace building, um, it can say that it's acting with sensitivity to local wishes and demands, and it's not just imposing its will on the host country. Um, however, interestingly, because the UN's rhetoric and its actions don't necessarily match up, um, I found that it actually fails to generate a lot of legitimacy in local eyes. Um, local actors see that there's a gap between what the UN says and what the UN does, um, and therefore they're unconvinced by its, by its discourse. They, they just don't buy it, um, and that's maybe not entirely surprising. Um, but what I did find at the same time is that local ownership also seems to have a self-legitimation function, function for the UN, um, where the UN is actually concerned with its own perceptions of itself, um, and it represents an attempt to convince itself that it's behaving in line with its institutional principles and behaving in a way that's appropriate for its identity as an international organization. Um, so in other words, local ownership is actually enabling the UN to view itself as legitimate. Um, Let's see, where am I here? Um, all right, so back to the gap between the rhetoric and the reality of local ownership um, and the limited operationalization of ownership. It would seem then um, that local ownership is, uh, on the one hand, a discursive tool for the UN and that the UN may actually be prioritizing the achievement of its operational goals above its normative ones. Um, and that it is trying to generate legitimacy primarily um, through, through operational goals. Um, but that's something really important that we need to remember here, is that um, rec for the UN, legitimacy doesn't just derive from behaving in line with its institutional principles and, and upholding norms like self-determination and non-imposition. It also derives from the achievement of its concrete targets and its operational goals. Um, and so it needs to also be effective. So the apparent prioritization of operational goals above normative ones may actually be explained as an attempt to generate legitimacy through effectiveness. Um, however, as I mentioned before, um, the great irony of all of this is that the selective way in which the UN interacts with local actor, actors actually inhibits the achievement of those very goals. 
Um, with liberal ownership, the UN is often interacting with peripheral actors, like I, like I described before, and they often do have weak capacities. Um, and therefore, they are not able to contribute in any substantive way to the delivery of concrete, sort of quantifiable results. Um, at the same time, though these actors are selected precisely because of, of their sort of liberal nature, um, their, their, their existence outside of the major power politics and the, and the, the sort of high-level politics in the country and their smaller roles in the pre-conflict, conflict, and post-conflict uh, phases means that they often don't have the means, um, capacity, or influence to gen generate genuine and lasting liberal reforms. Um, on the other hand, with elite ownership, the UN interacts with actors who are thought to have greater capacities precisely because they have that ability um, and they're thought to be able to deliver concrete results. Um, however, in practice, because it's, the UN is granting them a greater substantive degree of ownership, it's also granting them leverage with which to push back against the UN um, and to waylay the UN's activities. Um, and this effect is exacerbated by the UN's discursive emphasis on local ownership um, because it's, you know, it's constantly talking about ownership and it basically allows those actors to use the UN's own language against it. Um, you know, if local actors do something that the UN doesn't like, it's very hard for the UN to tell them, actually, that's probably not a good idea, when repeatedly they've said, this is your process, you decide, you lead this process, you have to own this. Um, and at the same time, elite actors may have, um, while they may have better access to major power politics and um, may have greater levels of influence, um, they are often keen to entrench wartime or pre-war power structures that give them political and economic benefits. Um, and, but that are often repressive and unequal. And so they're very unlikely in this case to contribute to the overall liberalization of the post-conflict state. Um, so there you go, you have these, you have um, sort of this restricted operationalization of ownership that is intended precisely to protect those operational goals of the UN um, and it's, it's ironically just kind of undercutting them um, by, by sort of giving away leverage to local actors and, and allowing them to use the UN's own, own discourse against it. Um, so sort of to wrap things up, um, I think I'm okay time-wise, um, there is this gap between the UN's discourse of local ownership and its operationalization of it. And this gap basically throws into doubt um, not only the UN's ability to generate legitimacy and sustainability through compliance with institutional principles, but also its ability to generate legitimacy and sustainability through the achievement of stated objectives. Does this mean that local ownership is, is a useless policy or a concept for the UN or that we should throw it out of the practice of peace operations? Probably not. Um, I don't think anyone would, would argue that that's the way to go. Uh, but I, I do think it means that we need to um, reevaluate the UN's very orthodox commitment, at least discursively, to local ownership um, with, with much more empirical awareness. Um, it, I think a lot of the benefits associated with local ownership are um, based on assumptions um, even commonsensical ones. I mean, the logic behind ownership is, seems to make a lot of sense. Um, but, um, but when you look at how it's actually done in practice, um, things don't work out quite the same way. And I think there needs to be more of an acknowledgement that some of the inherent tensions within peace building can't be resolved by introducing a policy or a concept um, that sort of papers over tensions between um, self-determination and international in intervention, for example, or between uh, um, normative and operational uh, obligations. So back to the question of whose piece that I set out to, to answer, um, I think uh, the way local ownership looks right now, who, the piece is still very much the UN's piece. Um, and if we want it to be a locally owned piece, we need to um, look more at the contradictions and the gaps in between the discourse and the operationalization of local ownership. I will leave it at that. Thank you.